Hey guys, welcome to The Big Reset, where we focus on reaching every student every time. I'm your host, Julie Springer, and I'm so excited to be part of your professional learning community. Today, we're going to be talking with some guests about how universal design for learning makes a difference in the classrooms and schools where they are. We'll get some insight from them on how well this framework for teaching is working in their classrooms. Let's do this thing. get started, I just wanted to review some of the basics of UDL. Number one, the UDL model requires participation on multiple levels for success to occur. Students and teachers must work together to facilitate learning. Second, the students must be motivated enough to put effort into their learning. Third, the social settings surrounding the students have an effect on their learning, and we have to remember this. And fourth, the teachers and schools must provide the opportunities to learn in a safe environment, and the teacher must be good at their jobs by presenting materials correctly and appropriately. As educators, we can influence everything except for the social setting of students. The Universal Design for Learning is a standards-based framework. In Katie Novak's book, UDL Now, she tells us that UDL, quote, guides teachers to heighten the silence of goals and objectives in order to design engaging, challenging learning experiences that allow all students to become knowledgeable, strategic, and motivated. I personally believe that as educators, this should be our daily quest. Well, good afternoon. Welcome to the podcast, and we're so glad y'all are here. I'm going to let y'all go around and introduce yourselves, kind of tell us who you are, where you're from, and what you do. So we'll start with you, Alex. Yeah. Uh, my name is Alex Holmes. This is my seventh year here at Coppell High School. I'm from the area, grew up in Dallas, Louisville, and whatnot, and uh, been teaching English here. I now teach AP Literature and Composition, as well as a self-designed graphic novels course that replaces English 4. Wow, Diane Duall, I think I want to be in the graphic <laughs> novels design course. That sounds fascinating. I've been at Coppell High School. This is my 10th year to be at Coppell High School. Came from West. When Mr. Eden retired, I, I couldn't face a West without Vern Eden, so came to the high school. Um, I teach right now AP U.S. History. Last year I taught our standard U.S. History class and social studies um, department head. Awesome. And I'm Stephanie Flores, Director of Intervention Services here in the district. And this is my third year in Coppell. Um, I have also worked as a coordinator, a diagnostician, um, an autism evaluator, special education teacher, and general education teacher in a neighboring district. So um, kind of a little of everything to lead me here. Well, I'm glad all, th all three of y'all are here today. Um, I think this is going to give us a really cool perspective of looking at students on opposite ends of the scale when we look at abilities and things that we need to do to help our students be successful in the classroom. 
So we're looking at, you know, expanding knowledge no matter where the kids are. So we're meeting them where they are, whether they're our top shelf kids or our kids that have some struggles. And I think with all of you guys here at the table, I think we're going to have some great conversations about that. So one of the first things when we talk about UDL, we start with the why. And then that's a big part of it. So why do we start with the why? Why would you start with the why? Why wouldn't you? Sorry for the pun. Uh, but I feel like most people, I mean, especially once you reach adolescence, talking about high school kids, if you do not have a reason to do something, then you end up asking the why question yourself. And for especially advanced content areas like my AP course, that's not an intuitive answer necessarily. I don't need to know why every single theme of every single book ever written out there is important to my life, right, Mr. Holmes, is what a lot of kids would say. But I would, of course, argue differently. But you need a reason to start doing something. And I think for history, um, all of us are familiar with that. Why do we study history? Why is history important? Why do we need to know about what, what's happened in the past? It's not even relevant to us. So I think the why question for studying history in particular is especially powerful. When kids buy into, oh, this, I, I like to quote Faulkner on this, where, where he says the past is, is not um, dead, it's not even past. You know, that, that really resonates with me because we, we breathe the spirit of the past. And once the kids understand why we're investing so much energy in exploring that, it becomes very personal to them and um, certainly gets their attention. So I think for the social studies uh, disciplines, it's especially important to, uh, to answer that question of why. And you may depend, I, I would say, why not? Why not start with the why? That's, that seems to be the perfect place to start. Absolutely, I agree. And I think um, multiple, mean, multiple means of engagement is so important. And if we're not engaging our learners, if we don't have some sort of hook or some sort of reason um, beyond, you know, the grade or the assignment, um, especially for kiddos who may have some struggles in the past or maybe they're currently struggling, um, to be engaged in a lesson has to go beyond um, do this because I said so. Mm -hmm. It has to be from, you know, some more intrinsic motivation, um, a hook, a reason why, something to kind of look forward to and something to connect back to their own lives. That's great. I, I love all of y'all's answers. Um, so as we're moving forward, um, I know Alex and Diane, y'all are both department chairs for your departments. Mm -hmm. Um, we talk a lot about collaborating with the others on our team. When we're looking at UDL and we, we have you guys teaching on the AP level, and then we have our other teachers that are teaching on level classes. What are some things that you guys can all bring to the table together that are UDL related that will cross the barriers of all these classes? Ultimately, when we're talking UDL, we're talking about a structure, right? So it's not a matter of content that we have to see a difference in while my AP course does something that, or focuses on something different than an on-level course. But with focusing on things like engagement, understanding, moving through the process of actually getting through the lesson, that's something that any sort of teacher could benefit from, not even just within my department, but even intra-department intra conversations are also benefiting from that. So, you know, I think now I'm on the spectrum where I see kind of the on-level with my graphic novels course, and then of course the advanced level with my AP courses and I'm able to see how ultimately that helps me out in the long run because I know how to approach and engage those who are on a different level than purely just going for college, going for the grade, going for whatever they're looking for in that AP study. In teaching, in, in social studies, we call on level standard. 
And the reason that we, we, we do that, even I filled out a, a TAMS uh, recommendation just yesterday, and for TAMS, they call AP and standard. And standard is we're meeting standards, we're raising standards. In my department, we've embraced that to a certain degree. And last year, I taught the standard US history class in a, a push. I would love to see moving forward that kind of split in, in that teachers are, are teaching both. Because I think what, what you said, it, it opens your eyes to how you can bring those typical AP strategies into a standard class. And also how you can get AP students excited about the way you've excited kids in a standard class uh, with that engagement piece. So I think it just, it, it makes us better, better teachers, uh, especially with the expression, the uh, student expression and um, the, the whole UDL picture. What we're doing in social studies for our next two department PLCs, we don't have department meetings, we have professional, uh, we're a professional learning community, and so we're constantly learning. Anything that is communicated with my department that is just informational that comes out in an email. We are a, an active learning community. And for the next two um, department meetings, we will be doing a lesson share of UDL. We'll, we'll identify something from a lesson that we've done these first um, you know, 15 weeks that we feel is very strong in one of the elements of UDL. And at a table just like this, we'll have somebody who teaches AP, somebody who teaches standards, somebody who teaches world, somebody who teaches gov. I'll mix it all up so that collaboratively we can pull the best of what we've done in our department. So that, in, in essence, to answer your question about the collaboration piece. So, Stephanie, in, in listening to what they're saying, from the intervention side of things. How do you see a in-class support teacher stepping into these classes and being able to support this UDL? What are some things that you, you can take away from that? Well, I think there's a lot of things that an in-class support teacher can do. And I think starting with that professional learning community mm -hmm. is really key. Mm -hmm. um, if our special educators are aware of mm -hmm. the curriculum, the content mm -hmm. standards, what the goals are for that educator, um, I'm not saying that they have the time to sit in on all the PLCs, but even being able to plug in and listen into those lesson designs um, or having access to them prior gives them the opportunity to think about what are some ways that we might need to scaffold this lesson so that it's more accessible to a learner. Um, what are some strategies that we need to put in place to vary the content um, or to vary the, the expression at the end? You know, maybe there's a different way that this learner is going to express themselves. Um, and so just having that planning time to really think about what are some needs for that lesson, I think is, is really key. And then also understanding that not everything is about scaffolding and remediation. Sometimes it's about accelerating. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, are there ways that we can plug in and accelerate the learning and make sure that they're on, you know, sort of a fast track mm -hmm. so that they can keep up or catch up um, to where maybe the other learners in, in a standard class would be. So um, I think sometimes we think of intervention as, you know, pulled aside and slow down and, you know, reteach and relearn. Uh, but a lot of times intervention, if it's done correctly, can really close the gaps quickly and accelerate learning. I love that thought of being able to really reach down and pull those kids up and really close those gaps and find those holes of of missing information and helping bring that along. So in looking at UDL, student choice is a big part of, of UDL. Giving kids the power to choose, 
What are your thoughts on that? I love it. I just started a project actually over the past two days that we complete over Frankenstein, where we have students create their own creature or monster, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and rather than focusing on a monster that is kind of this disgusting, anatomical, biological abomination, they have to figure out what's a modern fear that could be symbolized through a monster or creature of their own design, and they get to choose what that fear is. And I'm a little nervous because we didn't get to do this last year with COVID and everything, uh, but normally students are very transparent and very vulnerable through this process and i think in order to in order to reach that level of vulnerability that you desire in a classroom you have to be able to give them choice to actually talk about the things that they want to talk about i agree i believe very strong in um, student voice and choice I, and i've i've found over the years that the more that a student is invested in making decisions for their learning, the better outcome is going to be. We also just started our Big We Are One project that we do that is based on multiple intelligences and personality um, assessments. Are you a meerkat? Are you a panda? Are you an elephant? That's the, the known love uh, personality. If you haven't taken it, it's adorable. But I had a, a student emailed me last night and said, I'm a meerkat. So I responded and I said, dear meerkat. Is so it's just that kind of level of fun. But within the, the project are 12 different choices, and uh, the kids just absolutely run with it. So anytime there can be voice and choice, um, I think that just lends itself to an authentic response from kids. And I think an important thing to consider with um, learners who may have an IEP or a 504 plan would be that choice and voice in their accommodations, mm -hmm. and being able to advocate for themselves, um, you know, that maybe listening to a book is going to be more effective to them than reading it, or maybe reading it out loud to themselves is going to be more effective. Um, but then beyond that, what are some, some things that the educator might want to know about them to help them learn how do they feel comfortable in the classroom? Do they prefer, you know, sometimes we think preferential seating, mm -hmm. and a lot of times that means in the front of the room, right next mm -hmm. to the teacher. Well, a lot of our educators are not standing at the front of the room, you know, teaching. So where's the place that's gonna be less distracting is maybe a better question than where's the front of the room. And then adding that voice and choice for the learner where are you going to learn best and what is going to be comfortable in this classroom for you how can i help you learn i think is another layer that we can add into that and actually i think we could do that with kids that are not on an iep or have a 504 plan i think if that's just a standard question that we ask our kids in the classroom um, you know beyond the choice of what product are you creating or what assignment are you turning in but what choices do you want to have in this classroom to take ownership of your presence here i think that's a really important point I have a student that I work with quite often, and one of the things I asked was, how do you learn? Do you know how you learn? Because he was having struggles with math, and he's like, well, when I worked with this one person, they helped me because they did it this way, but this other person, when they helped me, I didn't get it as good. I said, well, what was the difference? How are you learning? And I think teaching our students to understand and recognize those ways they process thing, things will help them be able to give us good information whenever we're assessing them. We've got to learn to trust the kids. I mean, we always trust them on helping us with our technology. We need to help get them to help us with the understanding how to assess them better. So vocabulary is a big part of UDL, and it's a big part of everybody's uh, different content areas as well. What are some ways that you encourage vocabulary development 
I think we we can answer that for our, our own disciplines, and that is read. You know, and it, it doesn't matter what you read. Uh, you're doing the graphic um, novel course, read graphic novels, read comic books, read whatever is interesting to you. The more you read, the, the better you're going to understand how language it works and how sentences go together and what words mean in context. And I think that coming back to the UDL, the more authentic context that we can give for kids in their learning, the better outcome we're going to have. And, and for me, I think reading anything and making meaning is a, a really good place to start. I, I do think there's a certain element of metacognition I want to touch on as well in that, yes, exposure is first and foremost what we absolutely have to get done. But for like the graphic novels, for example, we talk about the vocabulary right at the beginning of the year. That's the whole first thing I have to do because while you can look at a graphic novel, you might not necessarily know what to label the parts of a graphic novel as, you know. So for the first few weeks after we get through our intros and whatnot, it's basically this is a panel. What is this class? It's a panel. And there's a certain process of identifying that vocabulary word that I think is also essential for those kids, not just to say, okay, this is a word that I can check off of my checklist for the rest of the year, but continuing to apply the purpose of that word as well in whatever you're doing in your content. And I think there needs to be sometimes some intentional effort on pre-teaching that vocabulary and building that background knowledge um, just to make an even playing field and, and kind of build some foundation so that when they encounter that word in a text or when they encounter that word in a conversation or in a lesson, they have some exposure to it and some experience with it. So have any of y'all had any um, instances where you've had your students tracking their learning data? We had the kids take um, diagnostic quizzes and then identify where their strengths were and where they needed to work to improve and then we targeted their review to those areas that needed to be strengthened as opposed to just giving an overall you know, review to everybody every day. We found that to be very effective because the kids actually had a chart that was color coded that showed green, you're good to go, red, this is where you need to target, so do these things. And um, they, kept, they kept track of that for about three weeks before as we were moving into the, the star season. And um, I loved that idea and would like to see our, you know, Im that, implement, that idea implemented more. But we did pilot that last, last year and that was very, it, it was very successful. In my own course courses, uh, it's the writing portfolio is what I would probably be talking about right now, where I have my students collect their writing examples, paragraphs, essays, whatever it is. We try and hold on to that all year long so that when we have moments where we can actually reflect on our writing, we can see the evolution of that throughout the course of the year. Uh, so for graphic novels, sometimes that's a little more loosey-goosey, I guess you could say. <laughs> but for AP literature, it's, you know, it's a matter of this is my analysis, this is my argument, this is my professional standards of writing, and students are going to be able to, if they buy into it at least, go through that process of seeing how they can write better in the future. Uh, kind of going back to what we were talking about before, though, I do think that engagement and buying into that tracking is an essential part of it because I know at least within my own class, that's a flaw that I have. I say, of course, if you look at your writing, you can understand where you were flawed in the past and can kind of grow out of that. But I personally did not do as good of a job as I could have to get kids actually invested in, I guess their personal writing abilities. I don't think everyone should be a professional writer by any means or anything like that, but I still want them to be able to be eloquent enough. 
And when we think about learners who are served through special education, um, all of them have an individualized education plan, and in that are individual goals. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times those goals are written by the educators um, based on data that, you know, data of the learner. And one thing that we are really working towards as a district is having more learner voice or learner-led ARD meetings um, where they are an active participant in developing their goals, in reflecting on their goals, in the progress monitoring that happens. Um, so all of this is already happening. What are some ways that we can include the learner in that even more? Um, about middle school, they start getting invited to their ARD meetings, um, sometimes before then, but it's, it's um, required at a certain age. And um, with that, we start talking about transition. And when we're saying transition, we're thinking, how is it going to look when you leave? high school, you know, what does post-secondary options look like for you? And they're going to be different for lots of different kiddos. And so thinking about what are your goals, what are your interests, what kinds of things are you looking forward to, using that as a lens to build those goals and to build those supports and making sure that we're actually preparing our learners for what's next. Are we offering the, the courses that they're interested in that are going to lead them to those opportunities that, that they want to have? So. I think that that piece is so important and the, I think where we could do a better job is really with that progress monitoring, giving mm -hmm. that ownership to those learners so that they're tracking their progress along the way. Yeah, I've seen a lot of growth in kids, even in our, I mean, some of our kids in special programs even, I think, benefit from being able to say, hey, look, I mean, I'm going to give a really simple example, tying a shoe, okay? Today, I, I learned how to cross over. Let's, let's put a big star on that one because we met that goal. Now the next day, I've learned to cross over and go under and back over. Hey, and, then, and just tracking progress. That, talk about giving yourself a boost of mm -hmm. self-esteem right there. I mean, every time we can tell a kid, hey, look, you did that. That just makes them feel great about themselves. Well, and then when they can come to me and say, hey, look what I can do now. Look at how good I'm doing. I think that puts the power back into their hands, and it also gives them that ownership of, hey, I'm in charge of my learning. And I have, and I wonder, from what you just said, what is the role of grades in the overall um, aspect of tracking one's learning and one's progress? Because I, I think in a traditional scenario, one would say, well, grades should do that, right? That, that's, that's how we know if we're learning, that's it. And in, I'm just, I have that, I wonder, how valid are grades in actually reflecting student learning? That's just a little tangent that I, mm -hmm. I'm, yeah. but it, when you said that, it, it made me think about it. And I love this tangent because this is a tangent I've been having with my teams and department all year long. And <laughs> I, I got to shamelessly shout out Ian Bandershee here. I really do think that standards-based grading is exactly what we need in order to try and combat the subjective nature of grading and proving the skills and standards that we need. I've managed to actually get Kim Pierce on board to start moving in a standards-based grading uh, fashion. So I'm super excited to see what we come up with next year. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. I um, actually had a conversation with a teacher yesterday, and we were talking about there's some kids who they just cram the night before for a test just to get that grade, but then they don't retain the knowledge that we were hoping that they learned. 
Whereas you have other students who work really hard and diligently and they work day in and day out and they learn the material and they actually have it. They've got it and they're not going to lose it. But yet the kid that crammed got a 99 on the test and the kid that's been working but really knows the material now got a 90. It's not really showing us what they really learned. And I think that kind of circles us back to the importance of the UDL, of alternative assessments, and of authentic assessments in really being able to tell and design those assessments to show what a student actually has learned, not just what um, is able to, to do after a night long of, you know, watching Adam Noir <laughs> So let's talk about small group instruction for a little bit. Um, I know it's a large part of UDL. Um, and whenever I'm, and I'm going to show my age here. When I first started teaching back in the 80s, yes, the 80s, small group instruction, that was like how we did reading. Like you had seven kids at the table. You had 20 more kids that were out in the classroom. They were doing their thing. You had your seven kids. You did your reading group. Then you rotated. You got seven more. And, and um, but that's not really UDL. That's old school small groups. Tell me a little bit about small groups and your aspects of that with UDL. I think the important thing is to make sure that it's not a fixed group um, for every activity. I think that that's where we can kind of um, go astray as if we've already made up our minds that this is, you know, this is the group of this type of learner and this is the group of that type of learner and there's so much to, to learn from those um, mixed groups and mixed abilities and it might change based on the type of lesson that you're teaching. It might change based on the type of um, assignment that you're doing. And so being open to being flexible with those groups and thinking about what, what are you really trying to accomplish um, and, and what purpose does this group serve? I think, you know, there's a, there's a time where I want everyone who's struggling to all be in the same group. There's also going to be a time, of course, when I want those struggling students to be paired up with others who are going to help them out of that struggle potentially in a faster fashion. You know, we were already talking about accelerating learning and trying to figure out how we can get other people who need to get caught up, caught up. And I think small group instruction is just one of the many ways where you can actually do that. I also love what you're saying about changing it up. You know, I think every time I have a new activity with a small group instruction, I try and randomize it for myself so I'm not even conscious of it if I'm trying to be truly random, whether that's drawing cards, rolling a Dungeons and Dragons dice, or whatever it may be. It does have to be something that's new and fresh for them because after the, for me at least, second or third time they've been with the same group, it's old stuff, it's old news, and they already have potentially some habits they need to break already. I really believe in the... Um the strategy of coffee talk. That's what I call it. That's my code for you and I are going to sit together in a collaboration area and we're going to talk this through and I'm going to target to what you need. I loved then, and this is moot, granted, but I did love those Fridays when um, the C days, when we had a little bit of time to, to slow it down. The kids who could, you know, wanted to work ahead could do that, but I could also do that intervention with one or two kids on a very just friendly, um, you know, let's have coffee together, let's, let's talk about this, tell me where you're struggling and how I can help. And so I think the, um, the, the challenge is, is time. The challenge is time and the logistics of planning something. I was part of the small group 
um, intervention that Gona put together last year and where we struggled with it is what do you do with all of them while you're doing this with with them so I think those challenges of time and logistics have to be really intentional and, and thoughtful and I'm I'll be candid I'm still working on that so what are some of the barriers that UDL helps us break down in the classroom um, just the one size fits all. It, when you, as we said before, when you give students voice and choice into their and ownership of, of their own learning, it breaks down the barrier of the teacher being om, uh, omniscient and knowing all the answers and being uh, 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 not ha have having any possibility of making mistakes. It it brings the, a humanity into the classroom where everyone can be more real. I think it breaks down the, the barrier between the uh, omnipotent teacher and the, the student who is maybe wanting a grade and will do anything to get that. So I think having students in charge and owning their own learning is that, that breaks down one of those barriers. I think it also levels the playing field in terms of expression. I know you're already talking about your multiple intelligences and whatnot, and that's something I was always thinking about when I was going through our UDL text as well. I think that, you know, more often than not, the one-size-fits-all is actually just a one size that doesn't fit many more often than not, you know? And, you know, some kids are going to excel at the essay. Some kids are going to excel in film or presentation or something else. And I think if you are trying to create an equitable design within your curriculum, you'll naturally adapt to all of those modalities. And then everyone will have a more even playing field like we're talking about. And I think a big key to it, too, is just the accessibility mm -hmm. of the learning and making sure that um, that those barriers are not... I mean, we're never going to remove all of the barriers. Mm -hmm. And so to think that, that we can, I think, is, is a little naive because we don't know what the learners are coming in with. Um, and so there's always going to be some type of barrier to learning, whether it's, you know, a, a refusal to participate mm -hmm. or, or um, you know, just a, a lack of interest or, or something like that. But beyond that, the things that we can control and being able to just kind of let go of the idea that everyone needs to learn a certain way or everybody has to read this passage on their own. Um, you know, if there are ways that we can open it up and provide different entry points, um, you know, you think about a door that we're walking up to. If there's a ramp, that ramp is not just for the person in a wheelchair. It might be the, for the person with crutches. It might be for... Um, a person with a stroller. It might be for a person who is able-bodied and just chooses the ramp. Mm -hmm. And so giving that choice and not making it a this accommodation or this strategy is only reserved for those who, you know, sort of require it or it's mandated. Um, I think we can let go of that a little bit and say, what are some good strategies that we can use for all? Now, it might be required for some, sure. Let's make it available. But if it's available for some, why couldn't it be available to all? And I, I think that's a beautiful way of saying it. I love the um, example that you gave with the ramp. I think that really kind of puts things into a visual perspective for all of us. I just want to thank you, y'all. This was a great conversation. I appreciate your joining me today um, and giving me your time. And I will just tell you goodbye for now.
sure and listen to our next installment of the Big Reset Podcast, where we'll join three more educators and discuss other elements of universal design for learning. I want to thank Alex Holmes, English teacher and department chair at Coppell High School, Diane DeWalt, social studies teacher and department chair also from Coppell High School, along with Stephanie Flores, director of intervention services, special education for Coppell Independent School District. Special shout out to Monday Hopes for their music, Orange Juice on the Table, available at pixabay.com. I'm your host, Julie Springer, and I hope you have a wonderful day. May your coffee be stronger than the learners in your classroom.